Here's the story. It was, I guess it was late May, sometime around then. My dad called me up and uh, he said, hey, you want to go to an auction? And I said, sure. We, you know, uh, and we do that as often as we can. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So it's just something he and I do and, and, and uh, our boys go sometimes. And it's a lot of fun to, to do that. And then he started talking. He goes, hey, I met this guy at the food bank. My dad runs a, a food bank that they feed hundreds of people every weekend out of this thing. He said, I met this guy, uh, an old guy. He said, I met this old guy. Oh, my dad's 90. And, um, and this guy was like 80. And so he, he said, um, and he told me he's got this old car. Uh, he said, it's just an old, old, old Ford. And... Uh, he wants to get rid of it. And I said, well, where is it? He said, West Virginia. I said, well, let's do that. Let's, let's skip the auction. So we went to way up in the hills of West Virginia, and we found the house, and nobody was home. And my dad said, well, he told me it was in a barn. So, and they had like three barns there. So we just, we just went snooping through the guy's barns. And in the first one, we found this big pile of rags and boxes and everything. And underneath of it was that car. And it's a 1931 uh, Model A coupe. And uh, it looked just like that, except it was dirty. And I couldn't believe it. And uh, the, guy, the guy wanted to get rid of it. He, he um, uh, told us what he wanted for it. And I knew, <coughs> excuse me, I knew it was a steal. And um, uh, it sounds terrible stealing from an 80-year-old guy. Um, but um, I, I told Dad, I said, you call him, tell him I want the car. I'll come back and pick it up on Monday. So that's what we did. He agreed to the price. I came back, and, and I, I, I got there. He had the car running. It was uh, so beautiful. And um, so I gave him the money. He wanted cash, and I gave him the money. And the whole time, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to flip this thing. It's going to be so cool. Uh, I don't collect cars. I don't know what to do with them, and so I just was thinking about a, a buck. And so he gave my dad the title to the car, and and uh, my dad looked at it, and he goes, "Where did you get that name?" And he goes, "My mother." <laughs> and Dad said, "Oh no, the, your middle name. His name was Daniel Hartley Kearns, and and uh, my dad's first name is Hartley." And my dad said, "That's an unusual name." And he goes, I just wonder where you got it. And, and his wife spoke up and said, they named him after a preacher. And I'm like, I looked at my dad and I, I said, do you know anything about this? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't know. And, and <clears throat> so they began to tell the story. And they said that um, his, the, the, the wife filled us in on all the details the guy, Daniel, that we bought the car from, um, his parents lived up outside of Pawpaw, West Virginia. Don't know if you've been there. It's kind of an interesting place. And um, they were alcoholics. They were addicted to moonshine. And just their lives were a disaster. And this preacher came and planted a church in Pawpaw, West Virginia. And he, uh, every day, he'd go knocking... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm, I'm suffering with some uh, allergy stuff or something. Something's messed up, but I'll try not to cough too hard in the mic. Um, 
he started knocking on doors and asking people if they wanted him to pray for them. And then he'd invite them to church. Well, this couple was one of those doors that he knocked on. And that preacher led those two people to Jesus. And God delivered him from alcohol. And the crazy thing is that the, the man ended up becoming the pastor of that church. And the way I know that is, it was my granddad who did that. That was my, grand, my granddad started that church. And so they named their first kid after my grandfather. When I heard that, then I was really disappointed because now I couldn't sell the car. <coughs> how, you, how, how are you going to do that? And um, plus I had to explain to my wife how my financial plan didn't work. Um, but I'm, I'm telling you the story to tell you this. Uh, that car was part of a, a thing I'm going through that, where I just see God speaking to me and, and sharing some things with me. My, my grandfather was a very disruptive person. Um, he, uh, he was kind of a cowboy guy. He, he just, whatever needed to happen, he would make things happen. If a business needed to be started for some purpose, he would start it. If a church needed to be planted, he would plant a church. He would, he would do whatever was necessary to um, further God's kingdom. And, and I started thinking about, I mean, as I was thinking about his life, and every time I look at the car, I think about him now. I think about what it took to change a bunch of lives. I mean, that was just one story of many uh, of the lives that were touched by my grandfather, and I, I started thinking about, <coughs> I started thinking about everything that God. Uh, thank you. Have any drugs? <laughs> what is it? A breath mint. A breath mint. <laughs> thank you. Got some oxy. I might try that. Thank you, Josiah. Um. Through this year, I've really been thinking a lot about, oh, here it is, what we're doing as a church and what I'm doing. And it's been a journey, and I've realized that, you know, we started this church, we had this idea, which has been awesome, by the way, of creating a church to reach lost people. And so we, we, we built a church that kind of spoke a different language. We wanted people to understand everything we were saying when we came in, when we got together. And, and so through the years, we've seen a lot of people come to Christ because we could just share a, a very simple gospel with them. We, we're a simple group of people. I mean, we don't get real religious, real, real convoluted about stuff. Um, and it's worked. You know, we, um, in your program, you'll see this. This year, the last 12 months, 21 people have committed their life to Christ for the first time. All these stories that I'm about to give you, they're all on the wall up here in, in our uh, Connect cards. 45 people renewed their commitment to Christ. 11 were baptized, and at least six more are going to be baptized uh, in two weeks on our birthday. 36 people became members of our church, which means, and, and the numbers are perfect, 36 people completed growth track and began serving on a dream team. Around here, you, you don't get to be a member to you know, claim membership. You, you become a member to serve. Um, we have 53 others 
who have actually started growth track and in some level of growth track. <coughs> Nine children dedicated to the Lord. Check this out. We have 195 people serving on dream teams right now. And 144 people in life groups, which is the largest pile of people we've ever had in life groups. I don't guess pile's a good thing. But, you know, what I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what we're seeing. But we have a problem. And this problem has been something that I've known for a while. And I didn't want to deal with it because it's a big problem. And it's one that I'd just much rather forget about. But over the past year, God has really worked on me. And I'm on a... I'm in the middle of a spiritual journey with this, and I shouldn't be up here speaking today. I'm having a hard time just breathing, but I, I really wanted to do this and, and just share with you from my heart, because I want you to take the journey with me. And um, so I want to I tell you about some things that I've learned. Um, can we have the first graph up here, please? Okay, I, this is um, not anything new to everybody. This is... Uh, kind of the population growth that's happened in our county. Uh, I'm starting in 1992 because that's the year that Pam and I and our children moved here. So it's been 25 years. Um, just a short time after we moved, Loudon Times Mirror came out with this deal that the county had grown to 100,000 people. It took them 250 years to get there. Um, today, uh, 2017, that number's 385,000. And they're saying by 2022, it'll be um, well over 400,000 people. Now, when we started the church, which was 1999, <coughs> somebody gave me a demographic study that really spoke to where our county was and our state um, in terms of Christianity. And through a series of calculations and marker points, what they told us was in 1999, 4% uh, of people were Christ followers in our county. Now, the markers were um, you attended church twice a month, you... Um, had a, a quiet time, a regular quiet time, prayer and reading the Bible. You believed the Bible and you had asked Christ to come into your heart. So those were the four markers. It wasn't about denominations or anything else. The number was 4%. So over the last 20 years, um, a bunch of churches have been planted. Uh, we've got all kinds of churches in our county, small, uh, medium, large, <coughs> and very large. Um, so I want to show you the impact that we've had. Let's look at the next slide. This is the red. That's the percentage of Christ followers in our county. Now let's just say, but by the way, the number is still 4%. So the population has exploded, but the percentage of Christ followers is 4%. The, the latest uh, demographics actually came from... Um, Leadership Network, uh, Exponential, John Maxwell's organization, 
Barna, they're all saying the same thing. So if they're wrong by 100%, let's make it eight. I mean, we're just, the, the, here's the problem. We're not, we're not being effective. We're not changing anything. We being the church at large. Further study has shown us that the 96% of people who are not following Christ uh, with their lives are broken into two groups. Let's look at the first one. The first group is actually, this is actually the group that we started the church for. I didn't know that at the time, but in reality, 40% of the 96% will attend church maybe one or two times. Christmas, Easter, somebody invites them. They may show up. 40% of the 96%. Let's look at the next one. These are the people who will never attend our church. They, they, they will be asked. They, people will invite them. You've invited them. And they just aren't going to come. It's not going to happen. They, they, and I want to say this as clear as I can, they are not going to attend our church or any church. And so, the way our church, Destiny Church, has been built, developed, designed, we've been primarily designed for the 40%, the green, the green group. And these are for people who might show up and on a Sunday we'll, have a, we'll do the best job we can. We'll try to be uh, relevant in, in terms of our speech, what we say. So people, and, and every week we have people who come here who have never been in a church before. And, and so it's working some, but it's um, at its very best. Our target group is, is minimal compared to what's going on. And, and this isn't just in Loudoun County, by the way. This is happening all across our nation. Now, we have churches that have grown. We have a lot more churches in our, in our county. We've got some really massive churches in our county, huge. But the number hasn't changed. It's still 4%. So what that tells you is the people that moved in, 4% of them, were probably believers. And then we just swap them all around. And we call that evangelism. And people are not being led to Christ. And so I want to, today I'm planting seeds. Uh, next week I should be able to breathe and uh, I'll get all fired up. And, uh, but right now, I'm just going to plant the seeds. The story in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, and it says this. As Jesus left a town, a particular town, he saw a tax collector named Levi <coughs> sitting at his tax collector booth. It eventually was Matthew, uh, one of the disciples. Jesus said, follow me and be my disciple. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi had a party at his house. And Jesus was the guest of honor. And Levi invited all his friends to the party. Other tax collectors and, and other people. But the church people, the Pharisees, <coughs> they and their teachers of religious law, complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Now that's harsh. 
That, that's tough. Um, not anything that would come out of our mouths. Um, I'm going to come back to that because I think we project this sometimes. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I, I think that's interesting. He, he, he makes a distinction. He said, I, don't, I can't call the people who think they're righteous. In other words, <laughs> what good would it do? They're already righteous, self-righteous. So he goes on. And, and he gives um, a practical illustration of what he's talking about. Then Jesus, verse 36, gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But check this out. No one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old wine is just fine, they say. What is, what's the message? This is the point. Jesus is talking to religious people. In other words, people who've been in church. And, and I'm going to make that us. Now, I know we don't have a Pharisee attitude. We don't have a Pharisee heart. We know. Uh, we've all, I mean, if I'm your pastor you know that none of us are good enough to be accepted by God. It's only because of the grace of God and His Son, Jesus, that we can do anything. So I don't want you to take on something I'm not saying here. But this is a, a, a caution to the church. It says they like what they're doing, but it's not working. And I would say, geez, that's mean. That, that's... That's another message. I'm getting. I, I like what we're doing. It's just not working. The, the, the 4%, it's not working. Not changing anything. Jesus presents the real need and then says, it's easier to do what's familiar, what's comfortable, and then justify that. It's so much easier to do that than it is to launch out in a life guided by the Holy Spirit. The old wine is just fine. But that leaves us with a problem. So here's the problem. We have a new wine situation with an old wine mentality. We like what we're doing. I love our church. I love what we do. And I, 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 you know, we've worked hard to um, make it the church that we are today. Um, but we can't justify the return. It's, it's not justifiable. What are we doing about the 50 to 60% of people who will never come to our church? So we, for 18 years as a church, in some ways, we've been catching low-hanging fruit. We, we do what we do, and it's about the 40%. And there are people in the 40% who, who come and they get saved. And I mean, we've got the numbers to prove it. Uh, we can, you know, read stats all day long, but 4% is 4%. Um, and after we're done celebrating all that we've done and all that God has done, 
God's heart is still broken because of the 60%. Let me tell you about the 60%. Basically, for the most part, they are two generations removed from any spiritual influence in their lives. I met them when I was in high school. And their parents were not believers. They're not believers. Their children are not believers. That's, that's who makes up the 60%. These are people who wake up every day thinking that they are totally on their own. They're in charge of their own destiny, whatever that could be. Can you imagine? I mean, just they live without real purpose other than what they can create themselves. How do you do that? How do you, how do you function that way? They, they think this is it. This is all there is. This is the, and whatever happens, happens in, in the end. Many are hurting, lonely, looking around to see if anyone really cares. And they don't get church. They don't get, it's not that they hate us, or, I mean, they don't understand why you'd get a tax break. Why should a, why, why? And it's not because of an aggressive, evil, bad attitude. They just don't get it at all. Think about this. When people are driving down Catoctin, if they're headed east, they look to the right and they see Destiny Church, and then they see the Moose Hall. And if they're going west, they see the Moose Hall, and then they see Destiny Church. And you know what? They think they're both the same. They don't know. I mean, they both look like clubs. You, how do you get in? Who would want to go? And one drinks communion, the other drinks whiskey. They're just clubs. It's a cl- that, that's, that's the thinking. It's not, it's not like they're rejecting God. They, they don't get any of it. They, they just... <clears throat> It's a forgotten group of people. So, again, today I'm just putting seeds out there. What do we do? Well, first of all, we're not going to change what we've been doing. What we've been doing is working. The only thing we're going to do is get better at it because having a a church service that's relevant, that people can understand, um, they get what you're saying, they have moments of... as we get together, where God's Spirit just moves and He changes lives. And so we're not going to change any of that except we're going to work to do it better because there is a segment that this is working in. But there's something else that needs to happen. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking Him this question, Teacher, What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now this was kind of a trick question. He was just testing Jesus. He wasn't like serious. Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God. Now his answer is very Jewish. Okay, it's very... He knew the the answer. It's the Shema. It's something that every Jewish person learned as a little child. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you'll live. And it says then that the man was kind of feeling guilty like he'd said something stupid. So in order to justify his action, he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Because he felt, even as he spoke the Shema, 
that he spoke something that wasn't happening in his life. Who's my neighbor? <coughs> Jesus replied with this story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. A Jewish guy, right? If you've ever been to Israel and you know where Jerusalem is and Jericho, uh, Jerusalem, it, it was like a downhill trip through, at that time, uh, the most dangerous part of the country. Um, it was like murder row. People were killed there all the time by thieves. And, and so this Jewish guy was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. So three people came along. First was a priest, a Jewish priest. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Martin Luther King, in, in his last speech, the, the great speech, talked about this story. And he talked about the three people who, who passed by this guy. And he says that the first guy, the priest that went by, assumed he was dead and didn't want to touch him because he didn't want to defile himself. The second guy, a temple assistant, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. This guy knew that he was alive, but he didn't want to desecrate himself. Martin Luther King said, these two guys, for these two guys, it was all about them. It was all about what might happen to them. It had nothing to do with what might happen to the guy laying in the ditch. Then, a despised Samaritan. The Samaritans were um, uh, biracial. They were despised by Jewish people. They were considered dirty scum, really, is what they were. So this despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And Jesus asked this question, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? So the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. This is um, one of the greatest pictures of what the church is supposed to be that you'll ever read in Scripture. And based on where we are as a church, based on what we learn with this, based on the return on investment that we're getting in the kingdom today, I don't know about you, I have been gripped by this. Now, I've had a year to be troubled. I've had a year to look at things and sit back and say, okay, how do you do this? What do you do? And, and, and I feel like you know the, the momentum in me is is building. Today, you don't have that luxury uh, of, of time to think about this, so uh, we're going to play catch up here for a few weeks, and, and I want to just pour 
my heart and my desire and dream into you to show you what I believe God has for our church and how we need to change. And, and so just reading this passage right here, there are three critical adjustments that I believe we need to make. And th these are in your notes. I'd love for you to write these down. I want you to think about this. And I, I don't want you to think about it necessarily as a church. I want you to think about it as you, a person. Because the, the truth is that if I don't change, the church won't change. If you don't change, the church won't change. And I don't want to be one of those people who are like old wine skin people. We're, we're, we're comfortable. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to change. We like where we're at. We can hide our heads so we don't have to look at the numbers. Greg quit bringing graphs to the church. We don't like them anyway. You know, we, we can do that. But I'm not in this to be happy or content. I, I feel like the same way my granddad was disruptive. And he, my granddad, for the day, I mean, coming through the Depression, he made so much money and took care of so many people. He, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go plant churches, knock on doors. He, he just, but he couldn't not do it. And, and I'm hoping I'm hoping that we can't not do that. So, this isn't a rah-rah church thing. This is a rah-rah you thing. This, this has to, this, this is going to require the Holy Spirit changing me, changing you. So here's, a, here's the first thing. I'm going to challenge you. Number one, we, we have to redefine neighbor. We have to redefine neighbor. Now, a neighbor that we like, I mean, nobody wants to move into a neighborhood and then find out your neighbor's are jerks, right? I mean, surely the HOA can help with this. And, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you don't. That's because you're the jerk. And <laughs> joking. Um, we always like to have neighbors that we like. They're just like us. They, they think like us. They, they act like us. You know, all the noise goes away at 9.15 every evening, and the lawn's all cut a certain way. We all like to have neighbors like that. But Jesus has this redefining neighbor. A biblical neighbor is someone who's in close proximity, but they could be a different race, a different class, a different culture, a different religion, a different political party. All of those differences cause us to tend to marginalize our neighbors. We, you know what we do in church? And this is, I've been in church my whole life. I've, I know how it works. We like churches that do what we want them to do. We like to be in churches where we can get the right teaching or the right youth ministry or the right music or we like what we like 
And churches explode if they have all the pieces that everybody likes. They just the, the, the growth is phenomenal. But the return of 4% is totally ineffective. We'll do things that we really like and, and, and we try to do them better. But if that's what we're about, we, we lose. We totally lose. We like to be with people of the same race because it's comfortable. We like to be with people who think politically the way we think because that's easier for us. That's more comfortable for us. We like to be with people who are of the same religion because that's easier. We like to meet people and find out, woo, they're a Christian. Yes, this is great. A new friend. And when I watch what Jesus did, that's not how He picked His friends. That's not how He spent His time. The neighbor that He was talking about were the sick, the hurting, the rejected, the immigrants, the people who weren't from the right place. So we have to we have to redefine our neighbor. Number two, we have to fall in love with our community. We have to fall in love with our community. Um, I heard John Maxwell not too long ago. Our whole team went to a, a conference in Birmingham and. John spoke. It wasn't even planned. He got up and spoke. And it was maybe the best sermon I've heard in my whole life. And he, the place was filled with pastors. And he says, Pastor, let me ask you a question. Are you, um, are you called to your church or your community? And something in my heart just went thump. Because when I started, when, when we started Destiny, it was about our community. Somewhere, I feel like we maybe derailed a little. And we're more consumed with our church and what the church is supposed to be. And we've lost our community. And, and here's the other thing. We're not talking now about evangelism. Notice that what Jesus said. He, he says you're supposed to love your neighbor. That means no agenda. Yes, we want to lead them to Christ. But they can smell a ruse way off. They can tell if you've agendized your relationship with them or if you truly care about them, you truly love them. They can tell the difference. And, and so I think one of the things that we are going to have to learn is how to love our community with, with no expectation other than to be able to love them. And yes, that will involve sharing Jesus with them. But I want you to understand this. They need to see Him before they accept Him. And you and I are the only way they're going to do that. And it has nothing to do with us pumping up our numbers or seeing charts that go off the chart, right? It's not that. They just want to be loved. I wanted to show you a video of 
we've been we've been messing around with stuff. Okay, We're, we've been trying some things, and I want you. To I want to show you a story where we've just loved somebody. Let's take a look at this. We knew that we didn't want to just use this room just to uh, help the teens that are in the church already. Uh, we do use it for Tuesday nights with our uh, youth group and when we have the drop, uh, which has been amazing. Uh, but we knew we really want to use this as a way to be a bridge to the community. And so we thought, how can we meet a need in the community where we can get teens in here that don't normally come to church? So we've been able to use on Sundays uh, at noon, we have tutors from our church come in and do free tutoring to feed kids pizza. And uh, it's been awesome seeing how they've been able to come in and to our church, um, you know, students that normally wouldn't be here. Hi, my name is Kim Polk. I lead the uh, tutoring life group here today. Uh, every Sunday after church, we gather into the youth room and we start off with some pizza with the kids and get to see how their week's gone, how their day's been, and then each student teams up with a tutor that's volunteered their time for the week. And it has been amazing to see how these kids have developed and grown, how their grades have increased, um, and just being able to connect one-on-one -on -one with those kids. And really just having an area to sit down with them, figure out, um, separate them into different groups based on what they're trying to learn and with each tutor. I mean, just having the room itself has been pretty amazing. Isn't that great? It's amazing. It's amazing. It, we, yeah. It's just one little thing that, that we're messing around with because we know we've got to understand this and we've got to take action. You know, I, I shared with you last year, or last week, I mean, Daniel 11.32, people who know God display strength and take action, and we need to do that. Number three, we have to redefine success. We have to redefine success. You know, uh, for a pastor, success is all about church growth. You know, how many, how many people did you have in the seats? How, how big's the offering? Um, what's your influence uh, through the crowds that show up? I, I've learned that has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom because you can have a huge church. We're still at 4%. So what is success? And I, I wrote this down. And I'm just giving it to you again today because, again, I'm seeding things here and, and we're going to get into this. But we have to define success by our breadth of diversity and then our subsequent influence in our community. And what I mean by that is 
If we just keep finding people like us, we're not going to grow. We're not going to have any effect on people who don't know Jesus. We're not going to help them with their lives. We're not going to deal with the loneliness, loss of purpose. They're, they're just going to be like us. And so that isn't successful. If we could fill five buildings with those people, the 4% remains. And so success is this. Finding people who are of a different race, different class, different culture, different religion, different political party, and we embrace them, we love them, we spend time with them, the influence that we can have in those cultures are going to change drastically. So another seed planted. I want to close with a story that I've shared with this church multiple times, but it's, it's one that um, I'll never forget. Uh, those of you that have heard it, just act like it's all new news, okay? Um, it was graduation day for me from grad school. Actually, it was the day before in Virginia Beach, and our family went to Virginia Beach to, for the graduation. We went down a day early so we could go to the beach, and it was May, and it was really hot, and we just thought it'd be fun to hang out by the ocean for a day before my graduation the following day. Um, Ryan and Rachel and Robert uh, were with us. Robert was just a little guy. I think he may have been four years old. I haven't done the math, um, but it's going to be close to that. And they were playing down by the water, jumping in and out of the water. And Pam and I were up on the boardwalk, uh, a significant distance away, just talking. And I looked, and Robert was gone. And um, I think he's here today, so obviously the story ends well. Um, but at that moment, um, I thought, okay, where is he? And I'm looking up and down the beach. I don't see him. I run out on the beach. I don't see him. I'm running into the water, and I'm literally screaming, find Robert. Where's Robert? I think he's drowned. I don't know where he is. And, and, and it, was just, it was just this horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. The intensity of, of, of what I was about to learn was just it was the most awful moment. And um, then Rachel says, oh, there he is. And he, he'd run way down the beach chasing a dog. And I was so mad at him. I loved him so much. And I remember he came up, I grabbed him, and I, where were you? Where were you? And he's still trying to get over that moment. Um, it was traumatic. It was like, what did I do? What did, you know? And um, he didn't even know that he was lost. But for me, as a dad, I was moving from he's dead to he's alive. And I didn't care what people on the beach thought. People were actually in the water trying to help me find him. I didn't care about any of that. I just, just want my son to be okay. I, I would challenge you to try to think about what God must feel 
when his children are lost and they are his children and the church doesn't give a flip or doesn't know how to give a flip I, I love our church I, I love you guys I, I gotta tell you um, I don't question where your heart is I don't question how much you love God and I don't question how much you love others if anything, I, I'm struggling with my own leadership here because this is something that needs to change and God's had to change me. And I would just say, hey, God's looking at His children and there are a bunch of them. 60% doesn't even touch it. Because of the 40%, what percentage of those might not show up? I mean, we've got a whole world that needs Jesus and needs to be loved and needs to be cared for. And, and so I'm dedicating myself to this. I, I want to dedicate this church to this, to, that we're disruptive, that we could change the numbers, that we could literally change what happens. And it's, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take intentional living, intentional leadership, intentional prayer, and intentional ministry it, it's it's got it's going to envelop us and i got i got to say this too for those of you who who just like this church you just show up is it's really good seriously i want you to feel miserable because that's not working for us it's not working for the kingdom and uh, and I don't want to be the only one feeling miserable. So, I want to pray. Thank you for tolerating all the coughing and crying and gagging and all the other stuff. But, um, I want, well, Lord, I just pray that we would, you disrupt our lives. That you would just change it. Lord, that I pray I could be like my granddad. I just do whatever. We just do whatever, whatever it takes to <clears throat> give people hope and joy, and that uh, people who who've been their own purpose, their own destiny would realize that there's something so much better, so much greater, so much more fulfilling. I pray that you would redefine success for us. That you would redefine church for us. That you would redefine love for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And now, Lord, I pray for the person who walked in here today who has been their own purpose, their own fountain of joy. They've been their own provider. And they've discovered that that's not working for them. I would pray, Lord, that today they make the decision to give their heart to you, to give their life to you. And they would enter into the great adventure of being a kingdom person. And I pray this all in your
your precious holy name. Amen.